Section 11 of Sketches of the Fair Sex in All Parts of the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Sketches of the Fair Sex in All Parts of the World by Anonymous. Monastic Life. The Venerable Bede has given us a very striking picture of monastic enormities in his epistle to Egbert. From this we learn that many young men who had no title to the monastic profession got possession of monasteries, where, instead of engaging in the defence of their country as their age and rank required, they indulged themselves in the most dissolute indolence. We learn from Dugdale that in the reign of Henry II, the nuns of Amsbury Abbey in Wiltshire were expelled from that religious house on account of their incontinence. And to exhibit in the most lively colours the total corruption of monastic chastity, Bishop Burnet informs us, in his History of the Reformation, that when the nunneries were visited by the command of Henry VIII, whole houses almost were found, whose vows had been made in vain. When we consider to what oppressive indolence to what a variety of wretchedness and guilt the young and fair inhabitants of the cloister were frequently betrayed. We ought to admire those benevolent authors who, when the tide of religious prejudice ran very strong in favour of monastic virginity, had spirit enough to oppose the torrent, and to caution the devout and tender sex against so dangerous a profession. It is in this point of view that the character of Erasmus appears with the most amiable luster, and his name ought to be eternally dear to the female world in particular. Though his studies and constitution led him almost to idolise those eloquent fathers of the church who have magnified this kind of life, his good sense and his accurate survey of the human race enabled him to judge of the misery in which female youth was continually involved by a precipitate choice of the veil. He knew the successful arts by which the subtle and rapacious monks inveigled young women of opulent families into the cloister, and he exerted his lively and delicate wit in opposition to so pernicious an evil. In those nations of Europe where nunneries still exist, how many lovely victims are continually sacrificed to the avarice or absurd ambition of inhuman parents. The misery of these victims has been painted with great force by some benevolent writers of France. In most of those pathetic histories that are founded on the abuse of convents, the misery originates from the parent and falls upon the child. The reverse has sometimes happened, and there are examples of unhappy parents who have been rendered miserable by the religious perversity of a daughter. In the fourteenth volume of that very amusing work, Les Causes Célèbres, a work which is said to have been the favourite reading of Voltaire, there is a striking history of a girl under age who was tempted by pious artifice to settle herself in a convent in express opposition to parental authority. Her parents, who had in vain tried the most tender persuasion, endeavoured at last to redeem their lost child by a legal process against the nunnery in which she was imprisoned. 
the pleadings on this remarkable trial may perhaps be justly reckoned amongst the finest pieces of eloquence that the lawyers of france have produced monsieur gillet the advocate for the parents represented in the boldest and most affecting language the extreme baseness of this religious seduction his eloquence appeared to have fixed the sentiments of the judges but the cause of superstition was pleaded by an advocate of equal power and it finally prevailed the unfortunate parents of maria vernal for this was the name of the unfortunate girl were condemned to resign her forever and to make a considerable payment to those artful devotees who had piously robbed them of their child when we reflect on the various evils that have arisen in convents we have the strongest reason to rejoice and glory in that reformation by which the nunneries of england were abolished yet it would not be candid or just to consider all these as the mere harbours of licentiousness since we are told that at the time of their suppression some of our religious houses were very honourably distinguished by the purity of their inhabitants the visitors says bishop burnet interceded earnestly for one nunnery in oxfordshire where there was great strictness of life and to which most of the young gentlewomen of the country were sent to be bred so that the gentry of the country desired the king would spare the house yet all was ineffectual degrees of sentimental attachment at different periods in the earlier ages sentiment in love does not appear to have been much attended to when abraham sent his servant to court a bride for his son isaac we do not so much as hear that isaac was consulted on the matter nor is there even a suspicion that he might refuse or dislike the wife which his father had selected for him from the manner in which rebecca was solicited we learn that women were not then courted in person by the lover but by a proxy whom he or his parents deputed in his stead we likewise see that this proxy did not as in modern times endeavour to gain the affection of the lady he was sent to by enlarging on the personal properties and mental qualifications of the lover but by the richness and magnificence of the presents he made to her and her relations presents have been from the earliest ages and are to this day the mode of transacting all kinds of business in the east when a favour is to be asked of a superior one cannot hope to obtain it without a present courtship therefore having been anciently transacted in this manner it is plain that it was only considered in the same light as any other negotiable business and not as a matter of sentiment and of the heart in the courtship however or rather purchase of a wife by jacob we meet with something like sentiment for when he found that he was not possessed of money or goods equal to the price which was set upon her he not only condescended to purchase her by servitude but even seemed much disappointed when the tender-eyed leah was faithlessly imposed upon him instead of the beautiful rachel the ancient gauls germans and neighbouring nations of the north had so much veneration for the sex in general that in courtship they behaved with a spirit of gallantry and showed a degree of sentiment to which those who called them barbarians never arrived not contented with getting possession of the person of his mistress a northern lover could not be satisfied without the sincere affection of her heart nor was his mistress ever to be gained but by such methods as plainly indicated to her the tenderest attachment from the most deserving man 
the women of Scandinavia were not to be courted but by the most assiduous attendance, seconded by such warlike achievements as the custom of the country had rendered necessary to make a man deserving of his mistress. On these accounts we frequently find a lover accosting the object of his passion by a minute and circumstantial detail of his exploits and all his accomplishments. We fought with swords, says King Regner, in a beautiful ode composed by himself, in memory of the deeds of his former days, that day wherein I saw ten thousand of my foes rolling in the dust, near a promontory of England, a dew of blood distilled from our swords, the arrows which flew in search of the helmets bellowed through the air, the pleasure of that day was truly exquisite. We fought with swords, a young man should march early to the conflict of arms, man should attack man or bravely resist him, in this has always consisted the nobility of the warrior. He who aspires to the love of his mistress ought to be dauntless in the clash of swords. The descendants of the northern nations, long after they had plundered and repeopled the greatest part of Europe, retained nearly the same ideas of love, and practised the same methods in declaring it that they had imbibed from their ancestors. Love, says William of Montagnegu, engages to the most amiable conduct. Love inspires the greatest actions. Love has no will but that of the object beloved, nor seeks anything but what will augment her glory. You cannot love nor ought to be beloved if you ask anything that virtue condemns. Never did I form a wish that could wound the heart of my beloved, nor delight in a pleasure that was inconsistent with her delicacy. The method of addressing females among some of the tribes of American Indians is the most simple that can possibly be devised. When the lover goes to visit his mistress, he only begs leave by signs to enter her hut. After obtaining this, he goes in and sits down by her in the most respectful silence. If she suffers him to remain there without interruption, her doing so is consenting to his suit. If, however, the lover has anything given him to eat and drink, it is a refusal though the woman is obliged to sit by him until he has finished his repast. He then retires in silence. In Canada, courtship is not carried on with that coy reserve and seeming secrecy which politeness has introduced among the inhabitants of civilized nations. When a man and woman meet, though they never saw each other before, if he is captivated by her charms, he declares his passion in the plainest manner and she with the same simplicity answers yes or no without further deliberation that female reserve says an ingenious writer dr alexander that seeming reluctance to enter into the married state observable in polite countries is the work of art and not of nature the history of every uncultivated people amply proves it it tells us that their women not only speak with freedom the sentiments of their hearts but even blush not to have these sentiments made as public as possible in Formosa, however, they differ so much from the simplicity of the Canadians that it would be reckoned the greatest indecency in the man to declare, or in the woman to hear, a declaration of the passion of love. The lover is, therefore, obliged to depute his mother, sister, or some female relation, and from any of these the soft tale may be heard without the least offence to delicacy. In Spain, the women had formerly no voice in disposing of themselves in matrimony. But as the empire of common sense began to extend itself, 
they began to claim a privilege, at least of being consulted in the choice of the partners of their lives. Many fathers and guardians, hurt by this female innovation and puffed up with Spanish pride, still insisted on forcing their daughters to marry, according to their pleasure, by means of duennas, locks, hunger, and even sometimes of poison and daggers. But as nature will revolt against every species of oppression and injustice, the ladies have for some time begun to assert their own rights. The authority of fathers and guardians begins to decline, and lovers find themselves obliged to apply to the affections of the fair, as well as to the pride and avarice of their relations. The nightly musical serenades of mistresses by their lovers are still in use. The gallant composes some love sonnets, as expressive as he can, not only of the situation of his heart, but of every particular circumstance between him and the lady, not forgetting to lard them with the most extravagant encomiums on her beauty and merit. These he sings in the night below her window, accompanied with his lute, or sometimes with a whole band of music. The more piercingly cold the air, the more the lady's heart is supposed to be thawed with the patient sufferance of her lover, who, from night to night, frequently continues his exercises for many hours, heaving the deepest sighs, and casting the most piteous looks towards the window, at which, if his goddess at last deigns to appear and drops him a curtsy, he is superlatively paid for all his watching. But if she blesses him with a smile, he is ready to run distracted. In Italy, the manner of addressing the ladies, so far as it relates to serenading, nearly resembles that of Spain. The Italian, however, goes a step farther than the Spaniard. He endeavours to blockade the house where his fair one lives, so as to prevent the entrance of any rival. If he marries the lady, who cost him all this trouble and attendance, he shuts her up for life. If not, she becomes the object of his eternal hatred, and he too frequently endeavours to revenge by poison the success of his happier rival. In one circumstance relating to courtship, the Italians are said to be particular. They protract the time as long as possible, well knowing that even with all the little ills attending it, a period thus employed is one of the sweetest of human life. A French lover, with the word sentiment perpetually in his mouth, seems by every action to have excluded it from his heart. He places his whole confidence in his exterior air and appearance. He dresses for his mistress, dances for her, flutters constantly about her, helps her to lay on her rouge and to place her patches. He attends her round the whole circle of amusements, chatters to her constantly, whistles and sings and plays the fool with her. Whatever be his station, everything gaudy and glittering within the sphere of it is called in to his assistance, particularly splendid carriages and tawdry liveries. But if, by the help of all these, he cannot make an impression on the fair one's heart, it costs him nothing but a few shrugs of his shoulders, two or three silly exclamations, and as many stanzas of some satirical song against her. And, as it is impossible for a Frenchman to live without an amour, he immediately betakes himself to another. There is hardly any such thing among people of fashion as courtship. Matters are generally so ordered by parents and guardians that to a bride and bridegroom the day of marriage is often the second time of their meeting. In many countries, to be married in this manner would be reckoned the greatest of misfortunes. In France, it is little regarded. 
in the fashionable world few people are greater strangers to or more indifferent about each other than husband and wife and any appearance of fondness between them or their being seen frequently together would infallibly make them forfeit the reputation of the ton and be laughed at by all polite company on this account nothing is more common than to be acquainted with a lady without knowing her husband or visiting the husband without ever seeing his wife. End of section 11